Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I'm speaking with Kirsten Powers, a New York Times bestselling author, USA Today columnist, and CNN senior political analyst about her new book, which I really have enjoyed reading, called Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. (laughs) That's good. So, uh, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So let's start. Um, Kristen, how is your spirit? It's actually pretty good. And I say that because I don't think that, you know, necessarily what's happening in the world is anything to get super excited about. <laughs> um, but I feel like, yeah, I actually feel I feel pretty good. And I think a lot of that is the fruit, actually, of what we're going to talk about, uh, this, this book that I wrote, which was really a journey for me, um, learning how to exist in the world when a lot of things are not as they should be, and um, being able to still be relatively at peace. It doesn't mean I'm every minute of the day at peace, but you know, have some contentedness and, and peace in, in the middle of the storm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in fact, the book is indeed a journey. It's a pilgrimage. It's fun, a fun and very uh uh, it was very reflective uh, for me to just read it, to hear your story. Uh, grace uh, is such a huge topic for Christians. Uh, others might use the word differently, but this book is not just for Christians. But grace does not exactly dominate our civic life right now. Um, you write this, I didn't have the capacity to continue engaging with what was happening in the world without feeling miserable and run down. I like those two terms. It says it well. Miserable and run down. The judgmental soundtrack looping in my brain was stripping my life of joy. I felt hopeless and helpless when I thought about the fate of the country. Now, I think a lot of people feel that way today, whether they're commentators or not, uh, and would not, though, necessarily look to grace as a way to cope. So what do you mean when you say the word grace? How did you arrive at this idea? Uh, and how the grace is a way to find healing both personally and maybe even for the country? Yeah, I think originally it was a sort of an intuition. I Just looking around, I, it felt that our public discourse had become incredibly brutal and that there really was no space for people to make mistakes or to think differently. And I felt Again, it was just an intuition. I couldn't have really articulated it. But then when I really delved into it, grace, I would say if you were not like the sort of secular version of it would be the like if you're practicing it is grace gives other people space to not be you. And I don't think we really have that. What we have, especially in our the hyper political world, you know, in which I live and you live in, you know, in, in Washington D.C., it, it's very much, you know, people are what they believe, right? Uh, people are how they vote. It's it's very one dimensional, and so there really isn't that kind of space. And I like the Christian paradigm of grace because it's unmerited favor. Because a lot of times people will say, "Yeah, but that person doesn't deserve it," and that's the point. <laughs> So it's exactly like that's why it's grace. And so if you think of think of showing grace to another person, that is basically looking at them and saying, 
you know, if you're a believer, I see God in you. I see the divine spark in you. If you're not, you might say, I see the humanity in you. I see that you're the possibility in you, that you're more than just this thing that uh, is really driving me nuts. You say in the book sometimes, maybe a secular version of it is a lot of people are not one dimensional, but they, they're kind of doing the best with what, what they've got. Yeah. I think that that is a great encapsulation of grace of, of being able to look at another person and say they're doing the best they can with the tools they have right that doesn't mean that what they're doing is good uh it does and it doesn't mean that people aren't held accountable but i do think accountability grace infused accountability does look different than the kind of brutal the brutal accountability that we often see in our society uh and so i think that it it just really shifts everything and i i think that the also, a lot of people think, well, grace is just letting other people off the hook. It's just the easy way out. And the first thing is anybody who thinks practicing grace is easy has never done it because <laughs> it's not easy. Uh, hatred and demonization is super easy, right? That's like, we just go there like no problem. Uh, othering people, very easy. Actually trying to practice this is much more challenging and much more rewarding. Um, but it's also... I discovered much more about me than it is about the other person. And that was kind of a surprise to me uh, that it's not the, you know, maybe the other person is benefiting in some way, but the person who's really benefiting is me. And by the way, the person who is suffering when I'm not practicing it is me for the most part. So your book, Willings and Legabots, your book is your personal story really reflects our national story and narrative. You were a political analyst at Fox News appearing regularly on air for about 10 years. And then with the arrival of Donald Trump, you write in the book, things at Fox began to change and you realized you had to leave. And this all crystallized for you the day after a primary in 2016. You discovered, you say, a hole in your mouth where one of your teeth had been a result, your dentist said, of clenching your jaws so tightly you broke a molar. What are some of the ways grace has helped you in what you call the fight club arena of American politics. Yeah, I mean, I definitely at Fox, obviously being a left of center person there was very challenging. So I think that uh, perhaps if I had been able to practice grace more, I would have been I would have used boundaries more than seething, which is a big tool in terms of of grace, which is basically not going down the road of judging people and holding them in contempt and all the other things that are very natural to us, but basically, again, recognizing that's them and this is me and their beliefs belong to them and I don't need to let them live rent-free in my head, which was what I was often doing. It, even at CNN, um, which I think is something that a lot of people could relate to, is that when I was going on with people post-Trump, after Trump was elected, who we weren't disagreeing about tax policy, right? We weren't even disagreeing on the substance of anything. We were disagreeing on reality, mm -hmm. right. um, like actual reality. And so that that's that was when I really felt the, the contempt and the hatred. And I would just was getting, I just felt like I was being driven crazy. And I was, I would just be enraged. Again, you're right. Like, um, and it's very confusing to people because they'll say, but you're so graceful. And which is really a, a really illuminating thing because grace is not really about your behavior. It's true that if you practice grace, you probably will behave differently. But in my, grace is an internal situation, right? It's an internal game. It's like, how are you relating to other people? And if you could have heard what was going on inside my head, there was nothing graceful about it. 
So don't confuse good manners or people being able to stay calm in a crazy situation or professionalism with grace. Because internally, I was just like, I hate this person. They're just contempt. They're just horrible. They're just, just, just absolutely filled with contempt and hatred. And I would go home and think about it all the way home. I would come home. I would lay in bed. I would talk to my friends about it. I would talk to you know, my partner about it. And, you know, and meanwhile, they're off somewhere sleeping like a baby. (laughs) So, you know, who's really suffering here? And so I really, I mean, I'm interested to know what you think, um, you know, because you are more knowledgeable about these things. But I really think when Jesus says, do not judge, this is why it's because the minute you start judging other people, you have become entangled with all of their stuff. You know, and it's like, you're harming yourself. Well, indeed, as you say, these debates are really not they're less and less about policy matters and choices or even political philosophy. They're more about what's real and what's not and about putting people in categories of totally good or totally evil. But I would say social media was the other player that made this happen. And uh, social media is making it more and more difficult for us to have real discussions and to live with race. So how do you, uh, as a user of social media, use it for good, it can, the good it can provide, but to protect yourself from those very toxic elements that are core. I would say to a lot of people, uh, people need to know that Facebook uh, has an algorithm for profit that leads to conflict. Yeah, it's addictive. It's designed to be addictive. And when I sat down to sort of go on this journey of, of learning to practice grace, I basically looked at my life and said, okay, what is keeping me from practicing grace? Because I've already intellectually assented to it, right, as an idea. And I, and, and I think, the, you know, the real turning point for me was when I realized that my behavior, a lot of times on social media, um, and which was not as graceful as what you would see on TV usually. And the way I was thinking about a lot of people, and sometimes talking, like I said, to, you know, my friends and stuff like that, wasn't aligned with my beliefs. And so it's not aligned with my beliefs to be hating people. It's, I believe in loving your enemy, for example. And I was so far away from that, uh, that it was insane. And so when I looked at it, I thought, well, so what is keeping me from doing it? And that's really what this book is about, of finding the different things. What is keeping me from getting from point A to point B? Point B being Kirsten practicing grace and being aligned. Social media was one of the first things that had to go. And I had to, I just had to get off of Twitter and um, I really got off of all social media for about a month and just did a detox. And then I started to let it back in a little bit. And it was pretty clear that for me, Twitter was the real problem. And so I spend almost no time on Twitter. And um, that doesn't have to be true for everybody. Everybody has to figure out what their you know, tolerance is. And I have a very different experience on Twitter because I work at CNN, which means I'm always being targeted right, by bots and Breitbart and Fox for any kind of anything I might say that can be blown up so they can say CNN's Kirsten Powers did X so they can attack CNN. So it just for me, it's like I, you know, I post my columns on there or whatever, but it's just I, for the most part, I stay off of it. And that's been that's been very important because when I do stay on it, I can very quickly move into that othering. It's so it really moves you into that binary thinking space. It's also a revolutionary tool that we wouldn't have you know, Black Lives Matter movement with without it, we wouldn't have had Me Too without it. So it's not an all or nothing. There's there's stuff about it that's 
really wonderful and great and important. And it can be a toxic cesspool of hate. <laughs> so, you know, you have to, it's like buyer beware. Uh, dictators, we see Vladimir Putin's in the news now because of Ukraine. Dictators, authoritarians always try and crush media. Now, what was the experience at CNN when the president of the United States said that CNN was not just fake news, but the enemy of the people? I have to say it was, it was very shocking uh, to hear that kind of language and to watch conservatives defend it, right? Considering the outrage that they expressed when Barack Obama would attack Fox News, which I actually also thought wasn't appropriate. You know, I don't think the president really should be attacking the media because the media is an institution that needs to be trusted. Um, and it's, you know, the Fox News of back then, yes, it was it was more conservative, but it's, it's not like today. I mean, today it's it is just absolutely straight up propaganda. There were news shows there and reporters and all those things. So, yeah. So all this outrage over Obama, and then you can call the, the media the enemy of the people, and you know, name specifically CNN and New York Times, and um, and that's just completely fine. Uh, you know, I will say it didn't in any way impact what anybody was saying or doing. So, but it was chilling, and and I find it scary. Uh, and I think a lot of journal, there's no question that in this era, the, the, like, like pre-Trump, I never, I never really worried about my safety. Right. Um, and, uh, post-Trump is something that I have to think about a lot. Well, in fact, you write in the book, um, that you face down some serious rage and hatred, even threats via social media. And that's six months into the Trump administration, you sat in horror in your living room as police explained that you needed to upgrade your security because your security system, which you needed the security system, because an alt-right community uh, with a history of violence had posted your home address online and said you should pay her a visit or something. Uh, so this wasn't just partisan. This was actually, or a feeling, this was threats directed right at you. Yeah, well, and to have just, yeah, have your pictures of your house and your dog and all these other things. It just I just had never experienced anything like that before. And I actually expected them to tell me, oh, you're, you know, don't worry about it. It's just all talk or whatever. And that's not, they were like, no, these people are, you know, you need, you have to be careful. And I know a lot of other people that this has happened to. And yeah, so when people are sort of like, oh, it's always been like this, or it hasn't, it just hasn't. You're right. That's happened to lots of people. I remember a woman who, ran and won this for a school board election in Florida just on vaccinations, and it happened to her. Happened to me and Joy. I was on Glenn Beck's Blackboard. Joy would come in and say, did you hear what he said about you today? And at first it was kind of funny uh, because it was kind of hilarious and crazy. But, you know, again, people that follow Glenn Beck and listen to him. And so we literally were told to go to our school, talk to the principal. We had two boys in elementary school just to make sure the school and their teachers were aware and we had to worry about them coming home. It's a, it's a tough personal thing when safety, particularly safety and security of your kids is at stake by some ranting uh, commentator on, on uh, cable news. So this is a whole new world for us. Um, let's, let's pivot, if you don't mind, from the personal to the political, because you're right about in the book. Uh, when you speak of the need to extend grace to people with whom we disagree, which I certainly agree with, particularly in politics, you do face some criticism. As, as you're right, uh, you heard some 
version of the idea that you were telling people to go hug a Nazi. <laughs> Another way to ask the question is to raise a warning from a dear mentor of mine, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom you know well. We both read uh, The Cost of Discipleship. He warned about cheap grace. The German theologian famously said this, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So how do we prevent the grace you're talking about from becoming what he calls cheap grace? Yeah, because I, I think what I would say is I don't think when people say that, when they say it's what they're essentially saying is it just means looking the other way, right? That you just or that you're just nice, you're a pushover. That's just not what grace is. It's that's just not the definition of it, right? So that's just a misunderstanding. And it's a misunderstanding come that has is a result, I think, of a lot of bad behavior of people in power in churches telling people who are being harmed or, you know, just to have grace for people, right? It's been, it, it's been weaponized, basically. Uh, you, we even saw this with, when Donald Trump became president, and all of a sudden, all these evangelical leaders were all about grace, right? And it was, oh, Donald Trump's on all these things. Oh, well, just have grace for him. It's like, you're just weaponizing grace. That's not, that's not what grace is. So grace does not mean that there's no accountability. And I don't know a theology that would argue that it does, <laughs> right? Like, I don't, there's no, there's no theology where, God's grace means you're just free to do anything you want, right? So um, without any kind of accountability. And so I think that accountability is grace, right? So somebody does something and they, they've done something wrong. Let's say somebody broke a law, right? Use it in the, in the criminal justice system. You don't just say, oh, well, I'm just going to give them grace and they can just break laws because we have laws and we're a society. But what you do is you hold them accountable with grace, meaning you see them as a total person. You see them as a person who has a story behind them, probably trauma behind them. How did they get to this point? How can we intervene to, to maybe put them on another path versus the annihilation that we actually see, which is they're just done, right? People just, you know, particularly if they're black or and poor people, they're just put into the criminal justice system and it's just, it's just designed to kind of keep them on that hamster wheel of injustice, right? So that's not really accountability, that's annihilation. So I'm just arguing for accountability uh, and saying, you know, accountability is, is grace. It's saying to a person, you did something wrong and here's a way um, that you're going to be held accountable with humanity. And, and there's going to be a path back for you to be be in you know communion with society and 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 create wholeness where you cause brokenness versus what we often do which is just you messed up you're just screwed and you don't matter and you're just kind of thrown out like you're just disposable well on that point uh, i did read your book and on page 56 it says the grace period for racism misogyny and all bigotry is over yeah well i think those are the places where you you've really seen grace abused you know, this kind of idea of, I've certainly heard from my black friends who have attended, you know, white evangelical churches, raising an issue about something racist that was said, you know, even from the pulpit and being told to have grace and, you know, we're all human, we're all sinners, you know, all this kind of spiritual bypassing and weaponizing of spiritual language. And that's not what it means. <laughs> so, you know, and so we shouldn't let people who 
have abused language, own that language. I guess to a certain extent, it's a little bit of trying to reclaim this to say, just because it's been abused, it's, it's not an idea that we should throw away because it's such a powerful idea. And yes, people have abused it, but they are wrong. Like that's not what grace is. And as a woman, I can tell you, you know, all the times I've been told, you know, just to look the other way and just, oh, that guy didn't mean anything, you know, when you're being sexually harassed or whatever, which is a way of saying, you know, have grace for them, just cut them some slack. It's like accountability would not be a lack of grace. Um, You know, it would, it would be, you know, if it's proportionate with what occurred, I think when it's not proportionate with what occurred, then I think it is graceless. Like our criminal justice system is graceless because it's not proportionate. The punishments are not proportionate to what happened. Indeed, you raise this in your book. Uh, You know, the expression, uh, not everything is black and white. Uh, And you write persuasively about the trap of binary and dualistic thinking and how our political narrative has fallen into such deep and dangerous polarization. But what do you do with things that are indeed literally, literally black and white, black and white? Yeah. Well, I think that it's even here, like we can get into binary thinking, right? So it's like, you're saying that I'm not saying nothing's, nothing's binary, right? I'm not saying nothing's clear. I'm just saying a lot of times things are not as clear as they seem. A lot of times things are not one or the other, good or bad, those kinds of things. Sometimes they are. You know, sometimes racism is bad. (laughs) Misogyny is bad, right? Like, I I feel very comfortable saying those things. Um, The question is, when you're looking at a person, I think people are much more complicated. Um, And then I think most issues that we're dealing with are are more complicated than the way uh, they're often portrayed. It's it's very hard to see it differently because what makes us feel safe is being able to put things in the good and bad basket and being able to say and define the monster, right? Who's the bad guy? Show me who the bad guy is so I know I'm the good guy. And so that makes us feel safe. It makes our central nervous system calm down. It makes, you know, it makes everything feel better, but it's it's a false safety. It's not real. Um, and if you're a healthy and integrated person, you have more of a capacity to hold those things and not feel unsafe. Uh, to, to to see with clarity that something is a problem and to name it, um, but not lose your equilibrium. Right? It's that's that's the difference. Every every year for ten years, on the day we do policing, I have my students tell their personal and family policing stories. Now, as complex as they are, religiously and racially and all the rest, uh, as, as complex as they are as people, the, that, that day is so binary. Their stories of policing are indeed black and white, different stories, period. So how do we, how do we do it with the complexity of people in the midst of what some issues are indeed literally black and white? How do we do that? Well, because I, I guess I don't think of that as being an issue of being too binary, because th- that's just an issue of something being a fact, right? So that's, that's different. And if other people don't know about it, it's because of their ignorance about it. Um, it's not because it wouldn't, it's like, I'm trying to think of something that would be a, a better example. It's, it's more like a binary thinking of all Democrats are this way. Right. All Democrats think this, that and the other thing. And of course, we know that that's not true. Or all Republicans are are this like that we know them or, you know, when we think we see a lot of binary thinking, obviously, around religion. Right. All the different way Christians will just use Christianity because that's the faith that I know will just say with complete certainty 
you know, that this is, it's, it's all or nothing. You know, you just, you either see it the way they see it or you're wrong. Right. And that's very binary versus it's not binary to say, you know, my house is yellow. I mean, that's just a fact. And I feel like police treat black people differently is the same as saying my house is yellow. Um, and, and that people who don't know that that's on them, but that's just a fact. <laughs> so, and I think that people do come with different experiences and it's incumbent on us to be aware of that. And it's incumbent on us to have, you know, to love our neighbors and to have compassion and empathy for our neighbors and, and to believe that our neighbors are capable of narrating their own life. Right. Like the fact that there are white people that claim that what black people are saying is not true. And like you said, every black person that you've ever met says it um, is a problem. <laughs> um, like, why don't you trust them to tell us what their life is like? Right. Why are those stories always so racially defined about policing? You do cite a study that makes the point you just made that more than uh, 40 percent of Republicans and Democrats calling members of the other party downright evil, 20% of Democrats uh, uh, and 15% of Republicans said the country would be better if members of the other party just died. Now, I've actually heard that around uh, some circles where only people who aren't vaccinated are dying now from COVID. Uh, it's relatively true. And I heard people say, well, it serves them right. So and other surveys showing that um, old religious prejudices of not wanting your children to marry a Protestant or a Catholic, for example, have become uh, political prejudices. Americans are less likely to marry people of other political parties now than our parents are less likely to prove that, marrying somebody from another party. Now, that's a real binary uh, definition of people living and dying, downright evil, and who do you want in your family? So how does grace help us with that partisan rage and division we see even at that level? Well, I think if you were seeing people through grace, you would, you wouldn't, like I said, you create, you create that space for them to not be you and it's unmerited. It's not based on anything they've done or, you know, you don't have to like them. In fact, it's, it really is often for people you don't like what, well, you know, for like grace for people we like is, has a reason, right? So that makes it not a great, it makes it less grace. It, it might be grace in the sense that we're like, we'll cut somebody some slack or something, but I'm talking about this very transformative kind of grace, which is really for the people that we don't like and may even hate, right? And so what it does is it helps you see the humanity in them because you're separating them out from, you know, what, I guess your rage and your anger um, about what they're doing, but you're looking at them and saying, A, they're doing the best they can with what they have, even though it's not good. And that there is a, a potential here in this person that, that hasn't been realized. Um, and, and it's only when you kind of create that space. And I know a lot of people who say that kind of stuff about people who are unvaccinated. And I just, I feel like I, I do believe those people are doing the best they can with what they have, because Who's to say if I grew up in the town that they grew up in, got the education that they got, had the family that they had, went to the church that they went to, watched the news that they watched because that's what everybody watches and they've been indoctrinated their whole life that liberals are evil, right? Why would I be doing anything different? And and that so that takes humility. Like you have to actually say, no, that doesn't mean that what they're doing is okay. That's not an endorsement. That's just saying that, you know, I can still see the humanity in people and um, you know, I have very clear views. I have very left of center views and I think I'm right. <laughs> like, 
Like, I'm not going to lie about that. Right. I think that people who are like have very conservative views are wrong. And but can I look at that person and say, this is where they're a product of where they came from? And is it possible that I'm wrong about something? Right. How do we you make such good cases in your book and your again of how we have to treat people uh, in a more human way in a more complex way in a less binary way that makes a world of sense and to get to a better place in our relationships and our political dialogue we have to do do that but then how do we put that on top of and you what you called facts i'd say those facts are realities not just facts house house yellow police brutality the reality for every black parent in this country as we talk right here is they're afraid of their kids going out the door in the morning that isn't a reality for white parents so those are are facts but they're also very personal realities for people or when when the north carolina uh, supreme court said these voter restriction measures these new laws in north carolina are to use the court's language not jim wallace's but the courts uh surgically targeted at voters of color. The voter suppression around the country is directly aimed at doing two things, making it harder for black and brown voters to vote and then try to not count their votes. Those are facts and they're realities. And and so how do we deal with that in this democracy question? You and I, we're all facing a threat, uh, an existential threat to democracy like we've never seen in our lifetime, which is very different than having a better discussion about fiscal policy or uh, or how many Im- immigrants should come, or all those things. This is about whether democracy will survive these next two elections. But I, I agree with all that, which is why I think grace is so important. And I think one of the problems is people still are so confused about what grace is, right? So it's like there people will go back to this thing of it means I can't challenge things. I mean, I mean, in the title, I put "Speak Your Truth" for a reason, right? It's it's like the you know the best example would be MLK or. Uh, Gandhi or you know any of the civil rights heroes who 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 behaved with utmost grace right actually loving their enemies but were facing an existential threat right so the idea that somehow when we're facing an existential threat the thing to do is to be filled with hatred and contempt i think is upside down i think it's the opposite because what again who we're hurting is ourselves and so it makes it impossible to actually c- combat these things if all you're doing is spending all your time in a rage, exhausted, miserable, because you're so wrapped up in other people, what other people are doing. You know, like as, as Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, you know, when you fight the monster, you have to be careful to not become the monster, because that's what happens. I, I say in the book, figure out what you're a no to, and then figure out what you're a yes to. And so rather than going down the rabbit hole of berating other people and hating other people and all these very unproductive things, go do something. Start an organization, volunteer, donate money, write a letter to the editor. If you're me, I can write a column. I can you know, amplify voices that are actually being productive on social media. There are all these things that we can do that will be combating these problems rather than what we're spending most of our time on, which is just demonizing and othering and hating other people, which just never works out. I look forward to uh, many days working with you ahead. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. To hear more from Kirsten Powers, follow her on Twitter at Kirsten Powers. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you'd like, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the Soul of the Nation.